Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. All right, like when I did TV, I didn't always follow convention. So I sometimes would do the stuff that the producers say, no, don't do. So if there was a mistake, whether it was mine or somebody else, I just thought it was the funniest thing in the world to talk about it the whole rest of the show. So this is similar to that. Um, we talked about doing a podcast for a while. This is me giving away the store. This is May 9th, 2022. No idea when this is running. But what a blessing to me it is that on my very, very first day of taping, I get to collaborate with one of my old dear friends from the ESPN days. We didn't actually work together all that much, a half dozen times, something like that, maybe more. Um, but we saw each other a lot. We texted a lot. We'd throw clenched fists at each other in the hallway. We hugged. We, we, you know, we became friends. And this was during very turbulent times in particular. Like we knew each other a long time, but I'm speaking more specifically. I think Kaepernick is the mark, if you will. So the night that she wrote this one tweet about the last president that was the beginning of her end at ESPN, I remember getting a text. I feel like it was like 11 o'clock at night, and she wrote, Kenny, I've died on the cross for you. And it's like I knew what she meant. I didn't know what she wrote, but I knew what she meant. She did something crazy, and in fact, she had. And she joins us now. Her name's Jamel Hill, and it's great to be uh, back in tandem with you. It's great to um, uh, be in tandem with you again as well. And, and you're right. It was it was so funny because we had seen each other in the hallways at ESPN for a, a long time, and we were always friendly. And I, I think when um, when Trump became the presidency, it's like the, f the friendship got further solidified because I, I've told this story before elsewhere is that, you know, there would be always like moments. I felt like it would happen at least once a week where we both be either in the green room or in the hallway and we'd just be like, man, what the fuck? Like, what is going on in our world right now? Yeah, we we had a shorthand. Like America, Gretchen and I have amazing shorthand. I'm, I hope you have that with your husband, obviously, where you don't need to say much. It's just a look yep. or it's just it's just a moment. And there's a lot to pour through. Um, of course, you're writing for The Atlantic. You bounced back out of leaving ESPN pretty quick, got that writing job, doing your own podcast, had that CNN Plus thing. We'll get to that. Nothing that you did wrong. Uh, it's too bad that that went away. Uh, but I'm sure there'll be something very similar to that. You were doing that with Kerry Champion, my other friend. Um, not my other friend. I, mean, I have more friends than two friends, but you know what I'm saying. Um, man, let's go back. I don't want to dwell because I did a million podcast interviews after I left ESPN. And I'm sure you have a well-practiced story to whatever happened, but you know, it's worthy still. It's, it's, it's part of your history, right? And I was there to share it. I don't know how in the hell you and Michael Smith did it. Really don't know how you did it because daily you had sarah crackerby calling for your head you had the president of the united states calling for your head and you're still putting on a damn show about cubs twins let's go to the highlights i mean how did you do it well it wasn't easy because after the tweet and the ensuing fallout and being suspended um it did make the show for me more difficult to do because there felt like there was just this cloud over it and 
Um, to be honest, though, a lot of the feelings that I had about our show were they were in existence before Donald Trump happened. And, um, you know, I'll share this because, I mean, I haven't shared it with anybody, but um, I have a, a memoir that's coming out in October. And it, one of the stories I tell about before we took over the six o'clock sports center is the fact that you, Mike Greenberg, Scott Van Pelt, it was like a chorus of, you know, seasoned sports center anchors, people who had been in the company culture for a while and understood it very intimately. And even though at that point I had been there, um, you know, over a decade, I, I had only been in Bristol because there's a difference between being at ESPN and being at ESPN living in Bristol. Those are two different experiences. And so for the first six or seven years, I was just a writer for ESPN.com, a columnist. And I would just come in and out of Bristol to do TV, to do other stuff. I didn't live there. So there was only so much of the culture I got exposed to. And then even once you're in Bristol, there's a difference between being on, say, another show and then the sports center culture, which was a lot different. And all of you all told us before we took the show um, before we took the 6 p.m. Uh, sports center is like, are they you, you all asked the same question was, are they going to let you be you? And the other it would then be followed by don't let them change you. And you, know, you hear from one person. I'm like, oh, OK, you know, they're just looking out. And then I heard it from so many people that I was like, man, what have we gotten ourselves into? Because everybody seems to in giving us this advice, there's an implicit warning that's in there, too. And that became really evident very quickly. So we were already having some creative issues with the suits before Donald Trump. Donald Trump then, once that happened and my tweet and all the fallout and the controversy, that just sped up something that was already, I think, in process. And, you know, it was hard because they, you know, ESPN was in this mode of they wanted to show that they weren't super liberal. They were trying to play both sides of the fence. They were trying to appease a crowd of people that would never be appeased. Okay. And the people that were loud and wrong about ESPN being too political were people who had their own agenda. Um, and it just wasn't true. I mean, you work there like the company's not, when I say not political, or I should say not liberal, it's like, it's a conservative culture at ESPN. And so this idea that ESPN is being run by flower children is just a lie. Like, that's not how it is. It's the opposite, if anything. Yeah. And so, you know, as you know all too well. I was going to say, I remember you had tweeted something. Somebody attacked you about being such a liberal libtard or whatever they were calling you. I was like, oh, yeah, Jamel read the Communist Manifesto yet again tonight. On this. Like, that never happened. <laughs> right. It never we happened. We never, we might yeah, be, we weren't, quote, unquote, left-leaning, if you will, as opposed to right-leaning. But that was in our personal time or on our Twitter when we were allowed Correct. to express ourselves. But on TV, other than my little sneaky references like home run, I would say man, bat, ball, fence, camera. You know, I was making the You know, we did that kind of stuff occasionally. But never did you come on the air and go, I stand against Donald Trump. You're like, that didn't happen. No, it didn't. And there's still people today who think that I said what I said about Donald Trump calling him a white supremacist, they think I said it on Sports Center. I was like, do you really think I said right. that on Sports Center? Like I didn't, okay? It happened elsewhere. And I've challenged those people many times who said the company was 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 getting too liberal. Um like nobody on air was discussing immigration reform. We weren't discussing healthcare. We weren't like none of that was happening. The only thing that changed and 
this is and and this is unfortunate that it's this way. But once they started seeing um, my face, Michael's face become more prominent, um, you know, you had Levitard who created his own ecosphere. Um, you know, Sarah Spain, Kate Fagan, Jane McManus. Once they saw certain names and faces become more prominent voices, then suddenly ESPN is too liberal because what they're really trying to say is. Oh, y'all must be liberal leading because you got all these women and all these black people who are suddenly on my TV every day. And so that means that this company has certainly given it into a a brigade, you know, of liberalism, you know, because the way some people acted is like that just merely being black is a a political act. I'm like, dog, I can't help that. I was born black. So if you consider (laughs) that to be political, that's on you. But, you know, to get back to your original question, it was it was really tough because. Then they wanted to suck all the personality out of our show because they they were so concerned about the headlines and what was being written and all the the right wing, you know, media and conservatives just constantly coming after our show as they had from the beginning before this even happened. And, you know, next thing you know, it's like they didn't want Mike and I together on camera as much. You know, they were they just wanted a more traditional sports center. And that was not what we signed up for. We signed up to do something different. We wanted to, you know, bring the craziness of his and hers, our previous show on the Sports Center, and they didn't want that. And I think part of the reason was because of a lot of the blowback from the Donald Trump stuff. They just wanted that story to go away. They wanted it to be a vanilla Sports Center, and everybody go home and safely tuck yourself in bed. <laughs> <laughs> but it, that doesn't make sense. Make it make sense. That was always your line. Yeah. Um, if you got a quarterback who can throw the ball all over the field, you don't say, "Hey, we're only going to run the ball because we don't want. We just want to be a running team." It felt like if you guys were doing this cool thing over at his and hers, I'm sure you got an upgrade in pay to come over and take over the six. That made sense, but then let them be them. It would have been like, like get out of their way. Well, um, that's not. I think they felt like us being ourselves was too much for the sports center audience to handle, and. Um, you know, it didn't become fun for me. I mean, it 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 is interesting how this how this works and how the universe can sometimes work. Sometimes, by far, Sports Center was the most high pro- high profile job I, I I had at ESPN. It was the best paying job I had at ESPN, but it's also the worst job I had at ESPN. Um, it was everything. Yeah, I mean, it was all of those things. It said I just I wasn't a good fit for the Sports Center culture. Definitely. Um, not a good fit for the management that was overseeing Sports Center at the time. And I got tired. I got really tired of fighting every day to be myself. And it was no fun for me. And so that's why I left. I mean, a lot of people are like, oh, you got kicked off Sports Center. Nah, I was in the contract, man. I didn't get kicked off. I chose to leave because the experience wasn't fun for me anymore. Yeah, and and I didn't want to set this up. And anytime I've been interviewed, it's not I'm not want to spend an hour bagging on ESPN. There were amazing opportunities, made amazing friends. I wish everybody there well, and I, I I'm guessing you feel roughly the same. You're talking about a particular uh, space and time. I remember one show. I don't know if you remember this, but it was it was during the Kaepernick original controversy, and I came on as a guest yep. on the six with you, and I was like, all right, Jamel says anything, we should be good here, and and I could sense. This guardedness, like, I don't know what they were saying to you, but don't go too far. Don't be saying too much. I, I don't know if that's what it was, but I felt this, I don't know, the way I knew you yet in that moment, everybody kind of tensed up, like, watch what you say. 
And I was going to say the same thing I always said. I, I'm friends with Nate Boyer. He's the, the Green Beret who, who told Kaepernick maybe it would be a good idea to kneel, not sit. Maybe that would be more respectful. You convey what you want to do, but you do it in a more respectful way. Um, that's what he did. He was doing a peaceful demonstration with regard to what's going on in our country, with regard to how uh, minorities are treated, particularly with regard to police. And he didn't get anybody else's way. He didn't run out in the middle of the field and burn the flag. He was just doing a peaceful, civil, dis- you know, civil disobedience, if you will, right? And so I said those things roughly. Do you remember the night? Do you, do you remember how tense that felt? I do. I mean, hell, I still got video of it, of our conversation. And I think I posted it when you left um, ESPN. And the the thing was, it, it wasn't, nobody ever came to us and said, hey, don't take it this far, this or that. But you know how it is in the culture. Sometimes it was understood, need not be said. And I wasn't thinking in that moment, like, oh, I better tread carefully here. But the entire time I was on SportsCenter, I was aware that there were certain boundaries that were here that were not the same when we were on ESPN2. Like, had you and I had that right. conversation on ESPN2, on his and hers, it would have been way different because that was the vibe of not just that network, but our show. And people knew that and knew what to expect. And so I think some of the challenges that we had on SportsCenter was that the audience was used to and trained a certain way to expect a certain thing at 6 p.m. And we were not that. And that's not to blame the audience, but it is to say that's one of the challenges that you face when you take over that spot. And particularly when you're trying to make the show your own. And one of the ways we did want to make it our own is that we wanted to have somebody like you on, not just as another anchor, but to actually give thoughtful commentary about issues that were topical issues that were related to sports. And yes, these other things, because, you know, I mean, you have a, a audience that, um, you know, likes and respects you, but also that this idea that, um, you know, you just read the news and that's it. And that's where your, your emotions stop is like, no, nah, that's not true. It's like, we're, yeah, we're sitting here delivering you the news, but we, we have, thoughts and feelings about the things that we see happening in sports that are related to the other things that are happening in this country. And it's funny because like, honestly, Kenny, that was one of the few discussions about Kaepernick that we had on the show, Um, which is why I always thought the perception of our show versus what actually happened is always the indicator to me about who really watched the show and who didn't. We didn't, we may have had two or three tops Kaepernick discussions, maybe, Yours was one of them. We generally didn't um, discuss it. And it wasn't like we were trying to avoid it, but we pretty much had said what we were going to say. And, um, you know, so this idea that every day that when people turned in, it was like, oh, um, today, uh, let's talk about this latest uh, issue of institutional racism. It's just not true. It's like, that's not what it was. All right. Yeah, but what's funny about that is after George Floyd then everybody and their mother was having those conversations, and then it was in vogue to, yes, we should be righteous. And, and I'm, I'm not, I'm saying it sarcastically, but but it should be spoken of. Why wouldn't we want to hear from athletes? What's your perspective? Look at all the WNBA women did, black and white, right? Like like there was they were the leaders of it all, and other people followed suit. Then companies had to j- jump in. Yes, we are for equality. So it, it's funny to me that just a couple years went by. All of a sudden, it's cool to make that front and center banners, T-shirts. But a couple years before, it was dangerous ground. Wait a minute. This guy's talking about something volatile. Yeah. And 
I, that should be a lesson for any media outlet is that you can't always wait till the audience gives you permission. Like the time when people know what you really stand for is when you do it when it's unpopular. Like it's really easy to do after something like George Floyd, after something like Ahmaud Arbery or Breonna Taylor or any of the number of incidents that we saw um, during that year that were obviously highly publicized and pushed us toward a different racial conversation that we've had in this country. And a lot of people during that time uh, would be, you know, in my Twitter mentions or just would ask me just personally, like, well, how do you feel about the fact that ESPN now is deciding that they want to be in on social commentary and want to talk about social justice. And even when my really good friend Angela Rye got hired, they're like, well, how do you feel about Angela Rye, who is known, uh, who's a lawyer, who's known, you know, for her being a political commentator? Uh, because, yeah, I mean, if we had tried to have Angela Rye on our show in 2018, it wasn't going down. Or 2017, that wasn't going to happen. And now they've hired her full time to to speak specifically about politics and sports. and. You know, I don't I don't hold a grudge about it. Mostly I'm thankful because I know what it's like to walk in those hallways and to be on air and all these other issues are happening in the country. And we feel like we can't chime in on it, chime in on it, even though the athletes are leading these into this conversation. This is not us just wildly just deciding, OK, you know, today we're going to have an abortion debate. No, when the athletes lead you there, you can discuss it. And so. I think what ESPN, like a lot of companies were reacting to, is understanding that trying to keep your food separate on the plate was just disingenuous and wasn't going to work. And, and um, impossible. <laughs> right. And I'm glad that they had a change of, of mind, mostly because I'm thinking about my friends who are still there. And I know the thoughtfulness in which they can bring to these issues. And obviously, you know, I, I, somebody like Angela, who's amazing. And so I'm happy that they're doing this. I just hope it's not a, a trend or just not something that they're just trying to be in on, now, in on now because it's fashionable and trendy. And then as soon as the appetite dies down, then they don't want to do it anymore. Like, I hope this becomes a consistent part of how they frame and discuss sports. I don't know if I told you this, but when I would do Sports Center highlights in basketball, particularly the NBA, if a guy would hit a three, one of my lines was, he made it from beyond the Jamel line. Yeah, you did, because every time you used and, it, you would text me. <laughs> sometimes I would hear it, I was like, boy, I'm telling you, somebody in the corner office somewhere like, what is Kenny May doing? <laughs> so, I think people get it, but it was a tribute to you. It was a joke for the people who got it, and then it was a tribute to you for your nerve, because uh, I was envious of that. I'm much older than you, got remarried. Four kids, two girls from each of us, right? A couple dogs. We just got a cat, by the way. What am I doing? Um, <laughs> Gretchen wore me down. So my point is I was trying to protect my job, right? I wanted to say what I wanted to say, say it when I could slip it in, quote Stevie Wonder, which would make sense to those who got why that lyric made sense. He's Mr. Know-it-all if Trump was speaking, right? Um, but that was to kind of honor your nerve. And I'm wondering, how did you get such nerve? And I don't mean that in that way that some people say that, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> how, how did you get that gumption? How did you like, fuck it, I'm just saying what I want? Well, um, it's something that comes through experience for sure. But I mean, in my mind, I feel like I've always been that way. Uh, because, you know, when I, I, people have to understand my, my route into broadcasting was a complete accident. It was not something I intended to happen or even sought 
um, I was a print journalist at heart. I mean, that was where I cut my teeth as a journalist. That was all I was ever interested in. My dream job was not ESPN. It was Sports Illustrated. I wanted to be Gary Smith, <laughs> you know, and sure. write these wonderfully long, compelling profiles of, of people in sports and um, kind of get to the heart of the matter, you know, write these Rick Riley-esque profiles <laughs> in Sports Illustrated. That was my dream. So I think if you get involved in journalism, particularly on the print level, you do it with a sense of um, you do it. You That in itself is a is a, in many ways an act of courage, because when I was in college, you knew you weren't going to make any money. I mean, the average salary for a journalist when I was in college was nineteen thousand dollars a year. So I chose this profession knowing I was going to be poor. <laughs> right. It did turn out that way, but I chose it knowing that if I ever made $50,000 a year, I was winning, okay, big time, compared to statistically what it said journalists could expect to make. But I chose it because I really do and still believe, even though it's disappointing looking at the state of journalism, that journalists are the watchdogs of society. I take it very seriously, that oath they tell us about when we're in J school and, and first learning about the craft and the profession is that our role as reporters is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. That's what it is. So being a journalist in itself is an act of resistance. So you have to have a certain amount of nerve to do this job from the beginning. So the marriage was easy. And it's not like I consider myself ever to be somebody growing up as being super outspoken. I was the person that maybe I didn't say a whole lot, pretty easy going most of the time. But when I decided to say it, I was saying it and I wasn't backing down. And that is always the spirit in which uh, I've given all of my commentary. And by the time I got to ESPN, I had been a columnist just for a few years and I grew into being a better columnist while at ESPN. So by the time I got to television, all I was doing was the verbal, um, the verbal representation of what I had done in print for 15 years by that point. And so it was always easy to me because it came naturally, especially when I considered it to be the truth. It's just like, you know, people ask me all the time about whether or not um, I had any idea what would be the fallout from that tweet about Trump. And I'm like, if I knew the fallout, I don't know if I would have said that. <laughs> like, but I thought it was just so true and obvious that I was like, oh, wait, I thought we all agreed that this was the case. And it was like, oh, there's some of you who actually don't think this. I didn't even know that. I thought well, the thing is, I thought we were all on the same page, but we weren't. <laughs> the the thing where I was really the the setup maybe was inelegant by me. I was really speaking more on Twitter, and you were just firing. Just I'm I'm going hard. I'm saying what I want. Whereas a lot of people said nothing, and that bothered me. I was like, how can you not? If you were ever going to say something, it seems like now's the time to say stand for something, right? So I did what I did. I'm not proud that I didn't go full Jamel. I wish I had once or twice more. I mean, I got in trouble for, remember when the stupid physical came out, the Ronnie, whatever his name is, Jackson? Oh, yeah, yeah, and yeah. Trump's perfect shape. He yeah. should live for 50 more years. He's one of the finest presidential athletes ever, whatever the fuck he said. And I, so I, I was out in Seattle and I read that. I was like, I'm going to, I got to say something. So I said, the president's doctor just timed me at 4-1 in the 40 wearing Snoop Dogg slippers. I thought that I was a good joke. I remember that tweet. I remember that. And I think we talked that day because I got a call. Mm -hmm. You cannot be critical of the president. I said I wasn't. I was critical of his, <laughs> of of his physician. doctor. It was, was clearly it was insane. It was a good joke. 
Right. And then there was another time I said something about Sarah Crackerby. I wasn't even talking about the president. I was talking about her lying her ass off up there at the podium. I didn't know what I, I think I said, you know, when somebody lies to you, like for the 43rd time, I tend not to believe the 44th statement, right? Like, you know, we're just saying true things is what I thought. So I just felt like the real rule was not don't talk about politics unless somehow sports and politics intertwine. That was supposedly the rule, right? The real rule was don't say anything that might have blowback. If you say something and it doesn't have blowback, we'll look the other way. But if Breitbart writes about you, now we're having a problem. Exactly. Like, wasn't and, that really the rule? And uh, No, and, and that's why the rule was always so difficult to navigate because ESPN cared about the reaction. They didn't really, what you said was immaterial because it could be completely true. And even, I mean, the fact is, you know, uh, Kenny, you're a, you're, you're a journalist, you're a broadcaster. So a press secretary lying to the American public is a big deal, okay? Kind of. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's kind of a big deal, right? And from a journalism standpoint, that is, to me, well within bounds to criticize her being a liar. And, but they don't look at it that way. Like you said, I mean, their thing was, if this shows up on Fox News, then they're upset because they're thinking about all the people who watch ESPN who also watch Fox News who are then be upset because Kenny May fired off that tweet. And now all of a sudden they're not going to watch Center because of a tweet. It's like, all right, right well, right. guess what? Somebody might watch Center because you tweeted that. There's another there side go. to that, right? Well, you, you made the perfect point that uh, my background really was in hardcore journalism way more than sports. I fell into sports. I wanted to be on Frontline at this point, but I worked at a little station in Seattle. It was five days a week. We always joked, if there's news on the weekends, it's news to us. But they added a weekend show this one year after I just started doing news reporting, right? I'm out there doing like serious journalism and at least my version of it. And they're like, well, you play football, you're doing sports. That's how I fell into doing sports. Not against my will, but like, ah, eh, all right. And then Seahawks games became way more fun than city council meetings. But my point is, going back to what you touched on, that with the background of truth ought to matter, and a, and if and a journalist should call out and call it what it is, don't do it the way a lot of our American media did it until kind of recently, finally, they used the actual words a little bit more. But more often, there would always be these euphemisms, you know? Mm-hmm. Why do you think that is? Do you think everybody's just trying to stay in the system and not rock the boat too much? Uh, I think, unfortunately, this is the downside of when you have corporate-controlled media. And for a long time, and, and some of it, too, is inherent flaws that were within our profession in terms of how we, how we perceive being a good journalist like we all have been taught from the beginning in j school both sides there's two sides to every story you know get both sides of an issue and sometimes that is actually true that you should do that but sometimes if you both sides dumb shit what you do is wind up undermining your credibility there's no both sides to racism there's not another side okay there's no other side to that and the the american media has failed the citizens because we have both sides a lot of issues that never should have given credibility to a side that was one going to undermine our democracy like the biggest story in america right now is we are in a failed democracy that's the biggest story in america period and yet all the reporting is not framed in that way there was a flamethrower that came from inside the White House that set all of this in motion. And the fact that there's been no accountability for that is a representation of how the media has failed. 
because they, for the most part, after the initial smoke of the incident, you barely see or read anything about still the fallout from this insurrection. And so the fact that we're not framing stories looking at the crumbling of our overall democracy is frightening because that is what the media is supposed to do. You know, I recently did a podcast with Abby Phillip, who's the CNN host for Inside Politics, one of the moderators for the presidential debate in 2020. And she said something that is so true, but also scary. She said, you know, the one thing that came out of Donald Trump for journalists is that it taught them to stop trusting what politicians had to say. And it's crazy because one of the first rules you're taught in jur- journalism is even if your mother says she loves you, go find another source and check it out. That's <laughs> So the fact that we for years have had a media that just took what the politician said and said, oh, yes, they're clearly telling the truth. The fact that we couldn't even call the president a liar, that they would say, oh, he was not accurate or not factual. It's called a liar and it's OK to call him that. And right. I mean, <laughs> that's like when you get into the both sides thing. You know, to simplify it, if two plus two is four, I'm pretty sure that's true. But you could have somebody on the other side, no, it's five or four and a half. And then they would present that as though there's a chance that the four and a half, five answer is equal in value to the four answer when we all know two plus two is four. It's indisputable. Right. It's completely indisputable. Remember, you were talking about old, uh, you know, axioms from journalism school. There's, I love the one, I forget who came up with this originally. It's like, if one side says it's raining and the other side says it's not raining, get the fuck outside and find out if it's raining and it's either there's raining or it's too. not raining and <laughs> there's your report there's you know? a report exactly i mean even if you you, know, you look at critical race theory and how this has been um, which is not taught in schools no and it's it's such a made-up issue i mean one of the better reports i read i believe it was the daily beast they got to the bottom of who started this issue and there was not nearly enough reporting done on how this became the hot button topic at school boards across the nation, even though we all know it's not being taught. The fact that it's not being taught is not regularly a part of these news stories. What they do is go in and they say, oh, here's one side of it. Here's the other side of it. And it's like, why don't you tell people they don't challenge the politicians or the people or the any school boards to give examples of where it's being taught because they don't have any. So the media has done a huge disservice to informing people about this issue. And so... Unfortunately, in uh, the way journalism is conducted, um, it is not beneficial to the public. There's a lot of uh, clickbait journalism that happens. There's a lot of inaccuracies, half-truths, not checking those in power, a lot of lack of accountability, and just really poor framing and poor reporting that have become so mainstreamed um, that it is almost impossible to, to fathom that we have gotten to this point. And journalism is supposed to be one of those last institutions to continue to have a thriving democracy. And if this part fails, along with a crumbling democracy, we're in, a, we're in bad shape. We're in really bad shape. Where were you January 6th when it all happened? Do you remember, were you sitting on your couch? Were you somewhere else? Um, I'm pretty sure I was at home. And uh, I think I was... I think I was at home and of course everything kind of started on social media. Like I think I heard about, I'm pretty sure I heard about it on Twitter first and that brought me to the TV. Like this can't be happening. Like I was, I was so shocked that um, 
things had gotten to that point, even though I shouldn't be, just like history tells me I should never have been shocked. And certainly the way things have been going the last few years, I certainly, you know, um, wouldn't have been shocked. Like I was not shocked that, you know, the former president didn't engage in a peaceful transition or, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I mean, he's pretty lowbrow. So I wasn't surprised at that part. I was very surprised at the degree in which this whole big lie has overtaken the country. That's part of crumbling the democracy. And the fact that it's still a prescient part um, of a political party, the fact that they have organized around a lie about the election is like, yeah. what? So we're still in January 6th, to be honest. For sure. And oftentimes, the, the by the way, for those who haven't heard the Sarah Kenzier interview, this is similar ground, or if you've heard it, we're back to similar ground, and I appreciate you coming with a lot of the same points, but it, it was forecast. He said, they said what they're going to do. They tell. He, the only thing, you know, for people saying he's such a comment and a liar, he's also very truthful because he says out loud, and I don't know if it's a means of deflection or if he can't help himself or what, but they said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to object to whatever the results are. They lose. They object. They have all these fake audits all over the place. All the courts say it's all nonsense. And they still go with it. And then today on the Sunday shows, you can see Republicans being brought on for the other side, still saying the same stuff, and they don't get challenged. Like people who do the interviews don't listen to the answer and have a follow-up that that contests what was just said. Well, how about we start with the fact they shouldn't have them on the air? Is that if you, you go. if you can't, it, to me, a basic has got to be that because of the evidence, and this is not even a, a, about a personal belief, even though a personal belief our, our, um, this election was legitimate. The fact is, there's a mountain of evidence that suggests it was completely legitimate. So why are you platforming people who are continuing right. to lie to the public? Because all you're doing is giving them an audience to say dumb shit. Because you're not going to do what you said, in that you're not going to challenge them. You're going to treat it like a both sides issue. There's no both sides to the election. It was legitimate. There's no other side. So stop platforming the other side because you're giving it, you know, legitimacy. And so one of the many failings um, of journalism, because now the entire party is organized around this. And so even the people who probably don't believe it, who are using it just to fundraise, you still can't give them a microphone. And we don't, in journal unfortunately, at a lot of news outlets, they don't have the discipline not to do that. Yeah. They're so used to, I, th I think too many people are still caught up in olden time Republicans versus Democrats and we're trying to meet in the middle about taxes or about this or about that, not seeing the danger of what's going on. This is bumming me out, so let's just talk about fun stuff here. <laughs> okay. I was so happy for you when you left ESPN, not that you left, but I was happy you very quickly. I mean, it was almost overnight you had something going with the Atlantic, right? Correct. I, I, was, I don't know if that was in the works, but it goes back to your writing roots. You've written some some great stuff. They got your own podcast going, and then you and Carrie Champion almost had something else going. We How's almost that, did. <laughs> that feel with, with a little bit of time removed? It's not that long from it. For those who don't know, CNN Plus started, then stopped, and there went your show. Is there a way to get it on CNN regular or some other or is something going on to try to revive it? Well, at this point, um, Kenny, we don't know. Um, 
you know, I, I mean, it's, it's something I've never quite experienced before as a media professional when you have a streaming network that starts and then is shuttered three weeks in. <laughs> it was like, you know, and um, we have been talking to CNN for quite some time. And um, we were just, I mean, we were in the teeth of the production for our show. Um, you know, because, I mean, we had already, because one of the elements we wanted to do with this show versus when Carrie and I were on Vice and we had our show. And that was strictly an in-studio um, commentary interview type of show. But with this one, we wanted to get outside a little bit, do some do some of that um, man on the street type reporting that you are so good at. And we had a lot of cool stuff like really lined up that we had shot. You know, we went to Detroit. Um, we went to a wee grow house like we had a, we had some stuff coming. Right. It was really fun. And it was really disappointing um, that we got caught up in something that was way above our pay grade. You know, for those who don't know, it's like Discovery Plus and CNN. Discovery Plus and Time Warner are in a merger and CNN's owned by Time Warner. And there was just a lot of um, upper level espionage taking place that, you know, we were not privy to. And um, as a result, they shut up the whole thing. I mean, because I think there was a lot of indications that Discovery Plus was never really down with having a streaming service because they had a lot of other, they had one, their own streaming service and they have a lot of other um, partner platforms that easily these shows could wind up on. So I think, I'm not sure. I think you will see already. We've seen that there's some people like, I think Chris Wallace, his show is moving to HBO max. Um, I think you're going to see some of those shows uh, gravitate over to CNN and HBO max and maybe other platforms. They have not told us anything. So um, we know we're among the many shows that are under consideration to go elsewhere. So, you know, we'll see what happens. Um, Carrie and I still definitely want to work together. I mean, this didn't really dissuade us at all. And, you know, the one big thing that people need to know is, uh, you know, because, of course, not surprisingly, after CNN Plus was shuttered, uh, you know, right-wing media and conservatives had all the jokes about, CNN Plus shutting down. And, and by the way, I, I mean, I knew people hated CNN, but I didn't know how much the depth of that hatred was till I started working there. I was like, oh, my God, there's a lot of people that really I hate know where this you're place. Going. They were trying to bag on you when you were and you stood up for your your call. Like, hey, I'll be fine. There's some other people who yeah. left work, came here. They're the ones, you know, that, that, that changed their lives to get involved in this production. And they're out of work. Correct. You. I mean, you know how this game works. It's like the talent is always to some degree going to be okay because most of us have guaranteed solid contracts. So we're fine. Who's not going to be fine is the production staff. You know, I, I, I think about, you know, my makeup artist who she quit her job to, to work on our show. Um, she, uh, she had moved out to LA a few years ago around the same time that, that I did. And she was building up her clientele, still working a full-time job, and she worked with us full-time on The Vice Show. And finally, she got to a point where with um, our show and a couple other things she had going on where she could pursue her dream of being a full-time makeup artist, and she quit. And next thing you know, now she that's a year and some change of guaranteed income she won't get because of them deciding to, to shutter this. So it's not just about us. Like, I don't care if people you know, rip on me or blame me for why CNN Plus shut down, even though like our show never even aired. But what I do care about is that there's a lot of really good people who poured a lot of 
commitment and dedication into this show, and now they're out of work. You grew up in Detroit. I've always liked Detroit. I've had good experiences the times I've gone there. Stevie Wonder's from Saginaw. I mean, how, yep. you know, that's not far away. Tell me about Detroit. Why, why do you love Detroit? Well, um, I think a lot anybody from kind of a blue-collar city can can probably relate to this. And I, I, I'm sure this happens, and your audience can... Yeah, I'm sure they've had this encounter, and certainly I'm probably sure you did when you went to Detroit. Nobody puts on for Detroit more than people from Detroit. And the reason we do is because we don't have the reputation for being the cool city. Like, we're not Chicago. We're not New York. We're not Miami. We're not L.A. All these places that people want to travel to and hang out in and like, oh, they're party scene and this and that. So we feel an innate level of protection around the city. And when I was growing up, Detroit was only on national news for bad things. You could count on our city being on the national news at least once a year because that's when the murder rate was released. And Detroit's murder rate will always be either number one or in the top three or, you know, top five. So the only thing people knew about Detroit is that it had an out-of-control murder rate, crime, you know. Halloween thing. Yes. Uh, Devil's Night. A lot of people don't know about that where they set fire. I mean, you know, at its worst, it was like 500 fires being set across the city when I was growing up. Um, the night of Halloween. And so uh, finally got that under control. So these are the the only these things people knew about Detroit. And of course, you know, there's a generation that knew Detroit from Motown. And we still certainly have that part. But mostly it was negative things. And I think because of that, the people who are from there, we have a chip on our shoulder. We are out to prove to people that not just good, but great people come from Detroit. Great things come out of Detroit. Great innovation happens in Detroit. Um, great food, great um, entertainment, all these things happen in Detroit. And so I just always felt a responsibility, not just being from the city, as I like to say, to quote Jay-Z, from the real hood, not the rap hood, going to a Detroit public school, that it was important that people know where I come from so that they're not so dismissive of what Detroit is about. So anybody who goes to Detroit, they'll find that the people are friendly. We put on for the city and there's nothing we like more than showing outsiders why Detroit is such a good place to be. And every, you know, one of the shoots that we did for CNN Plus that hopefully sees the light of day, I took Carrie to Detroit and we had a whole Detroit experience. And oh, yeah. we we went ice, uh, we went figure skating in Detroit because believe it or not, people are deeply into ice skating. We would call hockey town. So, it's cold. <laughs> you know, um, but I took her around Detroit and she just loved the people and everybody there. And she was like, you guys are just so genuine and you love this city. I was like, yeah, because Hell, we know we don't love it. Nobody else will. <laughs> One of my favorite trips to Detroit, Lena Horne's niece is singing at this outdoor, I don't know the name of it. It was this outdoor restaurant bar place. Mm. She does this great set. She finishes singing, walks through the audience, hands the mic to the maitre d', gets in the car and drives off. It was like <laughs> the greatest exit. So I have, I have fond memories. Uh, I remember you and I always joking about the woke awards will be in. It was like a running joke with us, you know, for the people that are standing up for the right things. That word, the way it's been weaponized, when my knowledge of it is, it's from black culture. Basically, stay alert, stay woke. Am I close? You are. And then it be dead on it, accurate. <laughs> it be it became anything that's well-meaning liberal stuff. That's called woke. Now we're gonna just. It's so stupid. Like I just want to knock my head against the wall when. 
the 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 woke mob, you know, like what are we even talking? And also, there's no such thing as cancel culture. That's also made up. Very there's made so up. many made up things, and they trim them down to two or three words, easily memorized, and then there you go. There's your weapon. Oh, he's too woke. You know. <laughs> yeah. You when uh, when Aaron Rodgers managed to. Uh, get the complete bingo card by mentioning woke mob and cancel culture. <laughs> I was like, okay, that's a hundred points for you. The thing is uh, it, at the root of it. Yes. You're co- completely correct. Woke was a word that black people started. Um, and the thing is we would use it in serious and silly ways. You know, it'd right. be like, um, uh, you know, they charge a five extra cents, you know, per gallon, stay woke. <laughs> right. Like we would just use it. <laughs> Like, in a bunch of different ways. So it was a really fun and funny word. And then the white people got a hold of it. And I don't know. <laughs> the conservative white people specifically got a hold of it. It was just like, okay, this is done. And um, now, like, when you ask somebody who is using it in a derogatory way what woke means, like, they can't even explain to you what it is. It's just that they 100%. heard it on repeat enough. And they're like, oh, it's it means It's like this. that was a lot of things. Yeah, I'll ask it is. some people, if you ask me, and I'm, I don't even, because I'm not a member of any party. I stand for certain things that matter in my life. For I have four, five girls, counting Gretchen, right? Like, I should be for, I should be pro-woman, shouldn't I? You should. <laughs> and I am in many ways, and, and pro this and pro that and anti this and anti that. There's things that you as an individual believe in. You think this should happen in our country. This should be legal. This should be illegal, right? I want to ask sometimes, what do you guys... I did a podcast with Joe Walsh. It's a good podcast. He he is really trying to mend things. I believe that's his mission. And I said, what do you guys even stand for over there? Like lower taxes and smaller government? Are you still rolling that one out? Like like name some shit you stand for. You know, I think that I, I think that should just be an absolute requirement when somebody's going to get into political discussion. Don't just say I hate this guy or I'm for this. Name some things. What? Give me a checklist. Five top. Give me your top five stuff you'd like to see overnight put into law and they don't seem to do that no and that um that uh, you, you know and by default people think that this means because you challenge those things and what you said that people think by default that that means that you know you're um a slappy for the democratic party and that that's not what that means it's just the fact that if you're a political party you should have a platform and i don't know they don't have a platform their platform is Two words you just no. It's three things. Well, it's a lot of things, but these three in particular: woke, cancel culture, and critical race theory. Right? That's like that's their platform. It's like uh, okay, but that's mm-hmm. not it's not advancing society in any way. That's not like helping anybody. Other than that, they don't really have one. So uh, they're getting people to vote based off discomfort, racism, bigotry, all these things. And I don't think you could look at our American political system and not see one party is way more extreme. Than the other, it's pretty blatant and pretty obvious. The, sorry to interrupt. That extreme party calls the other side extreme, and some of the people buy that because they got called. You know, what I mean, like like AOC is a great example. I listen to her quite often. I don't think she's radical. Most no, of what she says kind of common crazy sense. She actually, <laughs> usually she's kind of standing up for the little guy. That's something my yep. dad taught me way back when. So I kind of get her, and I I'm not gonna say I agree with every last thing she says, but in general. When she speaks, I'm like, I'm nodding like, yeah, I get you. I know people who they just hear her name and they get this visceral reaction, like this flaming liberal, you know, this radical left wing. It's like, no, she's talking common sense. And most of the stuff is basic looking out for people. 
you know, tre- Christian stuff, if you will, right? Like, like the old "What would Jesus do?" Right? That's applicable a lot. And, and wh- whatever religion you belong to, he's you know whether you believe in Christianity or not, he's a historical figure for sure. What would Jesus do? Wh- whose side would he be on? That's a great question, pretty often. And they kind of prostitute his name to pretend that what they're standing for, which, as you said, isn't very much, as though, oh, we win because we said Jesus. <laughs> yeah, it's very reminiscent of of what, what, what's been done to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s legacy. It's very similar. Oh, for sure. Yeah, just in the sense of, especially, you know, my the most irritating day of the year is when we're observing Dr. Martin Luther King and suddenly here comes these parade of conservatives using him or praising him one and then using his uh, speeches, not, not even his speech, using a phrase from a speech that was not about what they think it was about to justify some of the things that they've said. I mean, probably the ultimate insult was when you know, I think it was uh, Josh Hawley from Missouri, um, the congressman there, who said that Dr. Martin Senator. Luther King Jr. would be against critical race theory. I'm like, huh? Right. I mean, it's just so it's just so dumb. I'm like, uh, okay, well, according to y'all, he is critical race theory. So yeah. I don't even know where that came from. But yeah, I mean, it. You know, it, it, it's a it's a frustrating time. It is. Some days, you uh, a lot of days, I wake up and I feel like this entire planet is on fire. Though, you know, believing in climate change as I do, that's actually true in some cases that it is, right? Certainly me being here in in California. So sometimes it's hard to think about the things of um, that you still hope for, what you're still hopeful about. And so I'm trying to be more cognizant of drilling into the hope a little bit more. I was going to get there eventually, but there's too too many problems before you get to hope. I know. It is. It is. I think... We have to, as a country, recognize all these things to get to the better side of it. However, the problem is we can't even agree that two plus two is four. There's, there you. I think there used to be an observance of accepted facts on some things, and then you could argue about meeting in the middle. And it seems like that went away. And a lot of it's for the many things that that you mentioned previously. By the way. Adrian Wojnarowski, Woj, ESPN, uh, basketball insider. You mentioned Senator Hawley. Remember his? Oh. <laughs> and, and, and it got leaked that he had told him to fuck off. Right. And I think he sent it, I forget who he sent it to, but it got out there and he got suspended. We happened to go golfing that day, me and some friends, when we heard all this news, like, oh my God, he's going to get suspended. And every time we hit a good shot, we just scream Woj bomb. It just <laughs> felt like we were. Doing something in his honor. So. Oh, but you know, according to um, Sage Seal, people who are left leaning don't get suspended at ESPN. <laughs> well, only her, only the conservatives at ESPN. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I agree with your earlier point that in general, it's a conservative building, not a liberal building, as far as the way it conducts itself outwardly. So that whole notion that we were all out there you know, praising Shirley Chisholm every show, you know, that didn't happen. That didn't happen. We we were just doing sports and, you know, I'll admit I snuck in. Every block shot, I would yell resist. I did that for five straight years and it felt good. It felt like, and it was applicable. I could always, I had a story to tell. No, he resisted the shot. Right. The one man It was factually score, true. resisted it. You know, he resisted it. Or redacted. It. Redacted, redacted was another good one back when the Mueller report.
I think just from you, I like three invites. I think I have seven or eight lifetime invites to the cookout. Mm-hmm. Is the cookout ever going to happen or is it just metaphorical? Does it just mean you're kind of cool, you're invited to the cookout? It, it is largely metaphorical, but the thing is, if there were a cookout, just know we would feel very comfortable inviting you. So <laughs> so it's sort of like you have a, a invitation that you can use at any point. I mean, the fact that, you know, that you would be widely accepted at any number of cookouts in itself is a badge of, of honor. And so that means, but there's levels to this, Kenny. It's one thing to be invited. The next level is, are you being asked to bring something? Mm, we don't know. We don't, we don't know you well enough to, 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 <laughs> to see if you can bring something other than, you know, it, it's, it worked this way for all of us when we were, you know, going to cookouts at our friends or family members' uh, houses or in the park or whatever. You start off on like red solo cup duty. You can bring the plastic cups. You can bring, <laughs> and not, well, not plastic cup. You have to specifically bring red solo cups. So you can bring the red solo cups, the paper plates, napkins, knives, forks. We'll put you on that duty. If you do that well, maybe you can graduate to bringing a food item. But let me tell you, it's certain food items. I don't know, man. There ain't been enough progress. We don't know if we can let you bring it yet. <laughs> so we we got to take you through the levels, Kenny. <laughs> I get everything you just said. I hope our audience does. If not, you know, do some research. I think it's on the audience in a lot of cases. I've brought this up where whatever's being discussed, it's on you to go figure out if you don't quite get it. I've watched stuff before and movies. I didn't get that reference. It must have been funny. I don't get it. Then you find out what it is and then you get it. So the cookout isn't for everyone, but it needs to be looked up. Um, well, just, I, I mean, sad. I guess for your audience to give them a little more detail, they, they should think of it this way. is It's a metaphorical place where black people um, are uh, the purveyors of this cookout universe. <laughs> okay, It's our universe. And I would say this applies to a lot of marginalized communities, um, be, you know, be it the LGBTQ community, be it. Um, you know, Latino, whatever group is your group. That Indian you, reservation could be Indi- anything. Yeah. Yes, indigenous people. Um, that there is a, a culture that we're very protective of, and when we see people who we feel like respect that culture, and who historically um, understand the culture, or who just align with some of the same values that we have, um, you know, allies. Everybody knows that words then as an ally, if you're invited to a community that you are not naturally from, that is a huge, um, that's a huge award. That's like a huge thing because we're saying that, yo, we fuck with you. That's all a cookout is. We say it, we mm-hmm. fuck with you, Kenny Mae. <laughs> Marshawn Lynch uses that expression. You <laughs> exactly. know what? That, we, we started joking about it, but there's a really super serious point to it all that you conveyed perfectly just there. Historically, this country was built where people who weren't white were excluded. They weren't invited to the white cookout, if you will, right? Correct. So this is you turning the table saying, we'll be over here doing our thing because we get each other. Now we're going to bring in some people that get us or we get. Correct. The original cookout was white men. (laughs) They had the original cookout, okay? Because only they could vote, only they could own land. Only like (laughs) They had the original cookout. And then we were like, you know what? We need a... We need a more, a broader cookout. So all I know is we will have Luther Vandross music at ours and very fine food and potato salad. 
and you know the potato salad is everything uh kenny so it's like we take it very seriously who makes the potato salad because the one thing where black people will clown you to the end of the earth may never forgive you is if you bring some raggedy ass potato salad potato mm-hmm. salad by the way i feel like i should tell your listeners does not have raisins in it just want to throw that i was out about there. to say it i already knew that part Doesn't have raisins. here's the thing most white people think dominoes are for lining up and then you flick one and they all fall over. What? Some of us know. Yeah, that's how white people play dominoes. They line, they line up like 70 dominoes, flick one, and then watch it fall over like a science experiment. Some of us were educated in college to learn from the boys in Inglewood, and I use that in a familiar, loving sense. Uh, Inglewood, Compton, Crenshaw. Yeah, because it's, taught- it's a West Coast thing. They taught us how to play real dominoes. You count by fives on the outside. And it was funny because the guys, when we were playing, they'd all be like, man, I thought white guys were so smart at math. How come you guys can't, you know, because it took a minute, like, oh, five plus five. So two fives on the outside is 10. And back then, the Lakers had Norm Nixon. So the brothers would throw down the chip and go, they just scream Nixon. That meant 10 points. You knew what was what. <laughs> so I, I feel like better educated. But here's one thing I don't know. I think I played it one time. Didn't follow the rules well, but I know you are an ardent supporter of the game Spades. Yes, I'm a, I'm a Spades player. Break it down in brief. Why do you love it, and how the hell do you play it? So if you're from the Midwest, you might be familiar with this game. It's called Euchre. Euchre and Spades are very similar, but except for in Spades, you, you use all the cards. Um, but, yeah, you, I mean, the, the Spades itself, is they're always the trump cards. And... Um, essentially the game is it's funny like in 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 black culture period like the game is taken so seriously like people have uh, all kinds of stories about near fights people getting cussed out like all things because this is this is the game right and so um it was a game my family played that and monopoly were like the two games that dominated Uh, I knew a little bit. Of, we didn't really play dominoes that much because, again, that's like a strong Cali West Coast thing. Um, but I know how to play it or whatever. But spades and Uno. Uno, I think, is actually becoming just as important as spades is in the black community, if I may uh, talk about what we discussed at the last meeting. Um, that was a joke <laughs> for people who don't get it. It's that Uno was getting right up there. But um, the best spades player at ESPN might be Scott Van Pelt. Talk about oh. progress. Because uh, me, you. Scott Van Pelt, um, Ryan Clark, and and Michael Smith played spades. And we did it on camera, you know, just have fun. It was one of the elements we put in, in Sports Center. And I I just, I thought I was going to get kicked out the race, Kitty. Because Scott Van Pelt Uh-oh. was frying our ass on the spades table. <laughs> <laughs> I was, and he told, he told us the story about how he learned how to play from the brothers at Maryland when he went to Maryland. There you go. And so, um, yeah, he know how to play some spades. Like, I, I put respect on Scott Van Pelt's spades playing, and I'll put some respect on your dominoes playing, even though I've never seen it, but may not. Listen, this is this is progress. <laughs> hey, one of, the guys, one of the guys I used to play with, his name was Thumper White. You think I didn't learn how to play dominoes? Okay, <laughs> come on. Thumper White taught me. There you go. Um, say something nice about your husband. You got married not that long ago. Yeah, I got married in 2019, pre-pandemic. Um, so glad we got that and the honeymoon in before the turn of 2020 when we're all in a, on lockdown. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I um, you know, I got married in my 40s and I think 
by far, it's the best thing that I've ever done. It's the most rewarding thing that I've ever done. And um, there's so many great parts to our relationship. Certainly, you know, we have similar values. We're, you know, um, like-minded and all these other things. But I think when you're kind of a, uh, when you're a career woman, and um, especially with the kind of demanding career that I have, it you need a partner that gives you a sense of peace. And so that's what my husband gives me more than anything, is that just a sense of peace. And um, he's fantastic in so many ways. And, um, you know, I, I just, I didn't know if marriage was in the cards for me. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't one of those women who felt like if I don't get married, I'm not complete. Like I would have been cool with not being married or never being married or um, that was fine with me. And, uh, you know, this one really um, snuck up on me because we met at homecoming when I was at the Michigan State to be the grand marshal of the homecoming parade. We met at a tailgate as all great love wow. stories happen. <laughs> <laughs> That's sweet. Does he, like Gretchen does me, the rare occasions where I battle on Twitter? Because I just really don't do it much. I, If I want to correct something, I will, but I typically don't want to battle, but you do. Not quite as much as you used to, but you still do. Does right. he ever go like, just put, no, just put the phone, we don't need to battle tonight. Does he ever does he ever try to pull you in on that? No, not really, because I think he realizes that, it, you know, especially what I do and, and even what you do as well, is like, in a, in a weird way, that's, um, it's kind of part of now what comes with it. I mean, you don't have to battle everybody. Like, that's, you know, a personal choice. Uh, I just do it um, because sometimes I just feel like it. It's like, as I say, sometimes I got time. And I do get a perverse satisfaction of giving people the attention that they ordered. <laughs> and they don't like it usually <laughs> when they get it. So uh, you know, I, I got to get off I'm, on that. And uh, I have I have seen you reply with just your mama. Your mama. Like when you just, I, no more. No more. That's all you need right. to say, right? And so. Okay. So, yeah, but no, he, does, he doesn't do that. And he actually, I think part of it, I don't know if Gretchen is on, is Gretchen on Twitter? She is, but she's more Instagram. She just likes to see pretty stuff, and she, she's following the news, but she just doesn't want to be in the battle. Right. So yeah, my husband is not. He has a he has a Twitter account, but he's not on it a lot. Like he's mostly like Instagram, um, you know, more Facebook. Which I'm like, ooh, God mm -hmm. bless you. I don't know how you got the patience for no. Facebook because <laughs> I, I can't. Do I never it. watched Apprentice. I've never been on Facebook except through ESPN. We had to join for this one show, but. That's how Trump got elected. Facebook. Yeah, they they were no they were a Facebook. major co-conspirator in that. And the things you see on Facebook, um, and I I don't know if you've ever seen the the documentary on Netflix, uh, the social. Yeah. Um, oh man. Crazy. That that made me want to delete every social media account that I have. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're but listening to us right now. Yeah, they, they're, they're, they're listening to us. They are. Um. So yes, I got but a to double, answer your question, um, he he doesn't really. He lets you be you. He lets me be me. Doubleheader question, would you ever run for office? If not, what do you want to be when you grow up? <laughs> I, what boggles, what, what boggles my mind is like why people, I, I people have asked me that a lot in the last couple of years and my stock answer is like, are you kidding me? I have, I'm not patient. Um, I'm sure that, you know, I mean, I don't feel like I have skeletons in the closet, but I'm like, <laughs> the scrutiny in my life would be under like, no, thank you. But I also realized the reasons I wouldn't are the reasons I always encourage people to do it. Because, you know, let's be honest, um, not a lot of brainiacs 
that we have in representative leadership right now. Like, in fact, truly some of the dumbest people mm-hmm. you've ever encountered are right now in charge of legislation. And, it's, and you know, unfortunately, because our political system is tied to, to money, um, we are not sending the best and brightest. We, in many cases, we are sending the dumbest among us. And that does that is disappointing. So because of that, I always encourage other people to run. But it's nothing I've ever thought about for myself, um, mostly because our political system, depending on how you look at it, is either broken or working as designed. And I don't know that I, I'm too I'm not patient enough to see what it takes to like the just a simple exercise of getting a bill passed. Now I can see myself doing something more local, like being on a school board. Mm-hmm. Um, or something like that, but I don't think I would ever want to run for political office. Now, in terms of what I want to be um, when I grow up, um, you know what? I, I think what I want to be is of service. And right now in my career, I've been able to do a lot of cool shit. Um, I'm, you know, 20 plus years into journalism, closer to 30 years than I am to 20. And I have had a career I never have imagined or never did imagine um, that this would be the case. And so I feel like I have been extremely fortunate, blessed to have the career that I have. And so now, especially, you know, with the work that I'm doing now, I mean, beyond just the Atlantic and beyond just um, having my own podcast, I'm also creating a podcast network with Spotify that centers black women, black women as talent, black women as creators, black women behind the scenes for a black female audience. And this is, while there's been some bumps, some ups and ups and down, if I could pull this off even a fraction of the way I think I can, it's going to be the greatest thing I've ever achieved. And not because um, I get to say I got it, you know, got to start a cool new project, but mostly because it will be a, about helping a lot of people get to a different station and helping black women feel more seen than they are right now um, in this country. So doing things like that is far more important to me than the next Emmy I win or, you know, the next Webby or whatever award comes my way. So what I want to be when I grow up, Kenny Maine is of service. That's a good hopeful ending. (laughs) I'll see you at the cookout. I got the red solo cups. Boom. Oh, and if you can bring liquor with that, trust me, it'll go over very well. Henny, <laughs> thanks for your time. Hey, thanks, Giddy. Hey, Maine is a production of me, Kenny Maine, and Odyssey. Our senior producer is Paul Aspen. Our executive producer is Jody Avergan. And our executive producer for Odyssey is Lena Glazer. Social media support by Joey Capone. If you like our show, please rate us, leave a review, and don't forget to subscribe.